We are in Micah today, Micah chapter five, verses two through five. Don't worry if you don't know where Micah is. I'll put it up on the screen for you, or actually our our media team will. And we're also gonna talk a little bit about 1 Samuel 16. We're continuing our series on a little town of Bethlehem and the, the, the role the city of Bethlehem has in scripture and in the redemption plan of God. But I wanna start with this. Pierre Salinger was a broadcast journalist for a lot of years. Perhaps you remember him if you're my age or older. But before that, in the early 60s, he was the press secretary for John F. Kennedy. And as such, one day he and the president and all the entourage were flying on Air Force One and they hit some bad turbulence and it shook him up pretty good. And at the end of it, when things kind of settled down, Salinger was trying to make light of things because he, he was pretty terrified, honestly. And he said, hey, Mr. President, what do you think the newspapers would say tomorrow if this plane went down today? And JFK, of course, was pretty quick on his feet. He said, well, Pierre, your name would be on the front page of every newspaper in the world in very small type. And Salinger took that as joking between friends, and so he wasn't offended. But the reason I tell that story is there's a lot of people today, and perhaps you're one of them, who feel like that, who feel like your name, yeah, you exist, but your name is in very small type. You're not one of the important people. You're not one of the people that matter. And maybe that's because of some mistakes you've made in the past. Maybe it's because of things that aren't really under your control, the way you look or, or the, the family you were born into or, or the way the world judges you in spite of who you actually are. Who knows? There are any number of reasons we feel forgotten, overlooked, rejected, unworthy. But if you're one of those people, then this message is for you. And if you're not one of those people, if you're one of the people who feels like your name is in big type, this message is for you too because we need to learn to see the world the way God does. So I want you to start with me in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, in the palace of King Herod the Great. As he walks into his courtyard one morning and he sees strangers there dressed in odd clothes and speaking with weird accents. And they tell him that they've come from someplace far in the east. They've been marching, they've been walking for days, for weeks, maybe even for months. They've come because the the signs in the sky tell them that a, a king has been born to the Jewish people. The words they give us in, in, Matthew 5, in Matthew 2 say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now, I want you to think, if you know anything about Herod the Great, you know how deeply offensive those words would have been to a man like him. Who are you talking about? I'm the king of the Jews. And yet, although not at all a devout man, he knew the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah. I don't know if he believed in those prophecies or not, but when he heard these men say that signs in the sky, these are men who are who are paid, well paid, to to advise kings based on what they see in the supernatural realm. And now they're saying that a Messiah has been born in Israel. So he wants some answers too. They come and they say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod says, be with you in a moment. And he gathers the Sanhedrin. He gathers the priests and the scribes of Israel who hated him, by the way, because Herod was king, even though he wasn't actually Jewish. He was Idumean, which is a descendant of the Edomites. Um, He also was only in that position of power, not because of any righteousness or skill, but because he was a skilled politician, because he had cozied up to the right people, the Roman Empire. And yet he needed them at this moment. And so he, he sat them down and he said, listen, guys, tell me what the Bible says about where the Messiah will be born. And in response, the scribes and the priests quote for him the passage we're about to read, Micah 5, verses 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And I'm sure Herod must have grumbled to himself when he went back in front of those magi from the east and thought to himself, why, God, why, if you're really there, why Bethlehem of all places? Why Bethlehem? Think about the prophecy that's written for us there in Micah. Notice that he says that this one who is coming is from of old, from ancient days. Now that's very technical, biblical type language that means this is no ordinary human who's being born. Now, I'm not saying Micah knew everything there was to know about the Messiah. I don't think any human, not, not even the prophets, understood what Jesus was coming to do in total. But Micah understood because God had revealed it to him that this would not just be an ordinary birth. This would not be an ordinary child. He was someone who had always existed. As John says, the Word made flesh. The Word that created the world now became part of this world. Notice it also says in verse 4 that he will stand and shepherd his flock. And Jesus in John 10 said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then in the last, the last sentence in verse 5, and he shall be their peace. Isaiah called him in Isaiah 9, the prince of peace, who came to bring peace to our lives. But the main thing I want you to see from this prophecy is the very first sentence. The, there's a phrase that says that Bethlehem is too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, the, the word that Micah uses is a Hebrew word that, that's pronounced ser, T-S-A-I-R. And it doesn't mean small in terms of size or population, but small in terms of significance. If he was talking about a town today, he might say, they don't even have a Dairy Queen there. You know, there's, there's nothing significant about it. You would, you would go through that town, you wouldn't even know you'd been through the town. You'd get on the other side and think, well, when are we going to get to Bethlehem? Oh, it's back there. It's an insignificant town at least in the eyes of humans. Think about jo Joseph, uh, 700 years after Micah's prophecy, this poor carpenter from Nazareth, and he's got this big problem on his hands because, you know, the pompous windbag of a Caesar has said, you've got to go to your hometown and register. Right when his wife is pregnant and close to giving birth, and she has to go too because she's also part of the family of David. And when he's there in that city that's swollen far past its capacity to hold human beings, that's when her labor pains begin. And again, Joseph must have thought, Lord, of all the places, why Bethlehem? You know, the Bible doesn't actually say why God chose Bethlehem for the birth of his only son. But I've got a couple of theories because there are a couple of aspects of God's character that Bethlehem sort of highlights. And that's what I want to show you today. And then I want to see three things that that means for us. So two points, then three points. Now you know where I'm going? Okay, number one, I believe God chose Bethlehem because he is a God of grace. Grace means that God chooses freely. He doesn't choose on the basis of merit. He chooses on the basis of his own righteousness, his own love, his own mercy. Grace means it's a free gift. It means that God is the God of the runt. He's the one who chooses the one no one else would choose. We have certain standards, when you were a little kid on the playground and they were choosing up sides for, for kickball or dodgeball or football or whatever, didn't you hate when you were the last one picked? 
Now, I know maybe some of you were, were big and athletic and that never happened to you, but it happened to you in some other area of life, didn't it? Maybe the girl you asked to prom said no, and then the second girl said no, and the third girl. Not that I would know anything about this, but it, it's got to feel bad. We've all experienced that sense of rejection. You apply for that job. It's your dream job, only to hear, you know, you're not really qualified for this. We're looking for someone who is completely different than you. In fact, you're, you're the virtual opposite of the candidate we're looking for. Well, that's got to hurt. Again, not that I would know anything about that. Of course I would. God chooses differently than we do. If you were with us two weeks ago, we started the series by looking at the first three times the town of Bethlehem is mentioned in Scripture. There's when Rachel gave birth on the road to Bethel. On the road, she gives birth to Benjamin, and her labor pains are so severe, she dies in childbirth, and she's buried in Bethlehem. Then we read about a story in Joshua in Judges 19 about a woman who was born in Bethlehem whose horrific murder, horrific crimes against her became the flashpoint for Israel realizing we've strayed so far from God. Look how chaotic our society has become because we're doing things our own way instead of the Lord's way. And then the third story was of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi, a, a native of Bethlehem, who comes back after years in a foreign land and says, I went away full. God has brought me back empty. She's lost everything. And yet by the end of the story, we see that it's a story of redemption, that God brings Boaz into the life of Ruth and through Boaz redeems that family. And through Ruth and Boaz, there's the line of redemption that leads through David and all the way to Jesus Christ. So Bethlehem shows us that this world is a dark and ugly world, and yet God brings light and beauty into it. This world is full of tragedy and sorrow, and yet God can redeem all of that if we'll let him. This world is full of chaos, and yet God brings peace to our chaos if we'll let him. God's a God of grace. And as part of a pattern in Scripture, I don't know if you've noticed this, but if not, this year as you read the Bible, I want you to notice how often God chooses the last one you'd expect. It starts in the book of Genesis, where God consistently chooses the, the second born, the, the younger sibling instead of the older, whereas the, the world always chose the older sibling. You, you get to, you get to uh, Moses. Moses is not the first man you'd pick to be a liberator of his people. He was 80 years old, and he had a murder rap. He had a, a problem with his temper. He'd been wandering in the desert. He chose Gideon when he needed a general to lead a, an unexpected victory, 300 warriors with no weapons against tens of thousands of heavily armed warriors. Who does he choose? A guy who says, I'm a coward, Lord. I'm the least of all my tribe, and my tribe is the weakest in Israel. Samson... Samson had self-control issues and bad taste in women. And yet God chose him. Jacob, Jacob's name means I'm a deceiver. He was a con man. Joseph came from the most dysfunctional family you will ever see. Deborah, well, who's going to follow a woman into battle? Who's going to let a woman lead a nation? And yet God chose her. Josiah was way too young. Abraham was way too old. Elijah was just too weird. And yet God used them all. And that's just the Old Testament. That's just a few of the stories. When you get to the New Testament, you see Jesus continually bypass the powerful, the respected, the people with clout, the people with wealth. Not because he didn't love them, but because they didn't want him. 
And instead of knocking his head against the wall, trying to win the people who would have benefited him and made him powerful and made his life easier, he kept going to the people whose hearts were broken. You know, they had a nickname for Jesus, one of many, but the one they liked the best was, oh, he's just a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus said, yeah, that's me. You mean it as an insult, I wear it as a badge of honor because that's exactly who I am. I've come for those who are rejected, who are overlooked, who are forgotten. And it hurt his reputation, it hurt his, his bottom line, but he wanted those who were lost and knew it. Think about the people he chose as his disciples, his 12 closest followers, the men who would lead the most important movement in human history after Jesus ascended into heaven. I know, I know we have this high thinking, this high uh, 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 reputation, this high ideals of the apostles we name churches and schools and cities after them. But when you read the scriptures, Jesus chose 12 guys who you and I wouldn't hire to run a Waffle House. They just didn't have it until the Holy Spirit came and changed them. And listen to the stuff Jesus said. The meek shall inherit the earth. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. If you want to be great, you've got to be the slave of all. Who says that? I mean, that's not the way this world works. That's not how you get elected. That's not how you become CEO. That's not how uh, you get your face on the cover of Forbes or People Magazine or Sports Illustrated or Entertainment Weekly. Jesus said, you have to be last to be first. That's the way my world works. That's the way my kingdom works. Why does God work this way? Why does he choose the least, the small, the overlooked, the rejected? Because grace is who he is. Those who think God would sure be lucky to have me on his team, those who think, well, of course God loves me, who wouldn't? They're already unqualified. But those who say, I've got nothing to offer, I just, it, I can't believe God could love someone like me, that's a candidate for sainthood right there. See, in God's eyes, insignificance is a strength. His power is made perfect in our weakness. There's a second reason I think God chose the city of Bethlehem. And that's because it is, he is all about displaying his glory and his power. And he does that best through people who the world disregards. When I was 16 years old, 1986, the NBA held their first slam dunk competition. I know that's a, a, a regular thing now, but 1986 was the first year. And I can remember being a teenager and being in high school and me and all my buddies were talking about it. We couldn't wait to see, okay, who's going to win? Is it going to be Dr. J? I mean, he can take off from the free throw line and dunk. I mean, Dominique Wilkins, he's the human highlight film. Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. None of those guys won. In fact, I doubt any of you know who won, but if you do, keep it to yourself because I want to impress others and not you. Uh, so the guy who won was a guy named Spud Webb. This is the guy's actual name, Spud Webb. He's from Midland, Texas. Uh, Spud Webb won because he's five foot six, five foot six inches tall. See, it's, it's, it's impressive when somebody who's six foot eight dunks a basketball. But when somebody who's five foot six, just for illustration, that's shorter than me, at least last time I measured. When somebody that size bounces a ball off the floor, off the backboard, jumps up, catches it in the air, and dunks with two hands, your jaw drops. And you say, okay, 10, he wins. See, that's why God uses people who are unlikely, because when that happens, we don't just say, oh, well, it happened because he's tall. It happened because he's fast. It happened because she's beautiful. It happened because she's intelligent. No, we say, it happened because it's God. There's no other explanation. God 
shows his power and glory. Think about the Christmas story itself. We, we love that story. We, we have our little, our, our nativity sets at home and we, we, we have our Christmas cards and it makes it look very pastoral and beautiful and peaceful. But in reality, Jesus was born in poverty and squalor. It was a, it was a disgraceful way to be born. No, none of us would choose for our kids to be born in that way. And yet God was giving a statement from the very beginning. He's the savior for everybody. Not just, not just the, the beautiful, not just the well-heeled. I know our Christmas cards make the shepherds look like they're, you know, Calvin Klein models in hoodies, but the reality is they were, they were outcasts. They weren't welcome in the temple. I know Mary and Joseph look beautiful, but in reality, they were just peasants. Jesus wasn't born the, the son of a, a priest from Jerusalem or a scholar from Athens or a senator from Rome or a warrior from Sparta. He was born the, the son of two peasants from Nazareth, a town that's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. And they weren't even married. And God is saying, this is the savior for everybody, not just the people who the world says deserve it. And think about how he died. You know, we have this idea of what a hero looks like. Look at our action movies, right? Our heroes, they win through force. They win through domination. They win because they're stronger and smarter and tougher. And the ancient world, the people of God thought that's what the Messiah would be that he would be a man who would rally all of Israel to his side and they would conquer the Gentiles. They would, they would destroy their enemies. There would be blood on the ground. And that's the only thing that got right. There was blood on the ground, but it wasn't the blood of their enemies. It was the blood of their savior. The Messiah himself shed his blood for our salvation. That's not the way we would have written the story. God did it in an unexpected way. Think about the, the second verse of O Little Town of Bethlehem. The song this series is based on. It goes like this. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. God works quietly. He works in ways we don't expect. If you ever are in a church where the pastor acts like he knows everything there is to know about God, find another church. If you've got any Christian friends who act like they've got God in a box and they can always anticipate what he's going to do, that ain't God they're talking about. God always surprises us. He works unexpectedly because he wants us to know it's him and not us. So what does this mean for us? Three things. First of all, we should never underestimate people. So here's another event that happened in Bethlehem. Uh, one day, Samuel, the, the leader of Israel at the time, the spiritual leader, he had already crowned a new king named Saul. Saul was what you would pick out for a king. If you were looking, if you just lined up a bunch of guys, said, okay, that one looks like the king because he was taller than everybody else in the land. He was handsome. He was a warrior, but he was a terrible king. And the nation was in turmoil. And God said to Samuel, listen, stop mourning for this king who has let us down. It's time for you to take action. Go to the city of Bethlehem, find a man named Jesse, anoint one of his sons as the next king because he's gonna be a man after my own heart. And Samuel goes to little Bethlehem and he goes to Jesse's house and he says, Jesse, I want you to line up all your sons because one of them is gonna be the next king. And Jesse, of course, lines up his boys and they're all tall, strapping guys. They're all real impressive and and. and Samuel looks at him and says, well, I guess it's pretty obvious that one of these guys is the king. They look like a king. And God says to him in 1 Samuel 16, 7, 
The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He says, um, you know, Jesse, could it be that, you know, no offense or anything, but could it be that you might have another son that you forgot about? And Jesse goes, oh yeah, what's that kid's name? Oh yeah, David, he's out there with the sheep. David is the youngest in the family, so forgotten, he's given the worst job of all, the shepherd. They call him in and immediately Samuel knows this is the one and anoints him as king. How many times have you and I made that mistake? We've judged somebody based on how they look, based on some aspect of their personality that we just don't like, based on the color of their skin, based on the language they speak, based on a mistake they've made or a way they've offended us in the past. We've got all kinds of reasons we put people in little categories and leave them there. I want you to do me a favor. Actually, do yourself a favor and obedience to God. I want you to do this. I really do. Go home today and for the next several days and just say, Lord, show me where I have overlooked, ignored, or misjudged somebody. Because we've all done it. There are people in our lives that God brought into our lives so we could be a transforming influence on them, but we've written them off. We're missing an opportunity. Ask God to show you. Help me to see these people through your eyes. If they've hurt me, help me to forgive them. If if they've offended me, help them to see that I've offended others too. But ask God to show you who have I ignored, who have I misjudged, who have I condemned, and help me to see them through your eyes. Don't underestimate people. Number two, we should never underestimate his love for us. I know how it is. I know most of you are like me. You look in the mirror and you immediately see things you'd like to change. You look at the course of your life and you see mistakes you'd like to rectify. And yet, I want you to think about this. There's only one person in the universe whose opinion really counts. And that person thinks so much of you that he crossed time and space and took on human flesh in order to lay down his life for your sake. As Jesus was dying on the cross... He was becoming sin so that you might become God's righteousness. He was taking your place because that's how important you are. Hebrews 12.2 says that he died, Jesus died, for the joy that was set before him. We sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. You know what brought Jesus joy? It was the thought of you being redeemed. That was enough joy that he was willing to go through hell on earth. That's how important you are. He would rather die for you than live without you. That is what you mean. So it doesn't matter what you think of yourself or what mistakes you've made or what the world says about you or how many times you've been rejected. You are worth everything to him. So don't underestimate his love for you. And by the way, if you don't know that in a personal way, I'm sure if you've ever been in a church, you've heard that message before. But if that hasn't become the guiding reality of your life, where when someone asks you, who are you? You don't say, I'm a son or a daughter, I'm a husband or a wife, I'm a roommate, I'm a, I'm a Republican, Democrat, whatever you say, I'm redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God. If that hasn't happened to you, if you haven't been transformed by him, that can happen today. And the greatest Christmas present you could ever receive is saying, in Christmas 2022, I became a new person. And Christ redeemed me. And I would love to see that happen. You're going to have an opportunity in just a moment. Number three, we should never underestimate people or God's love for us, but we should also never underestimate his ability to use us for good. We've all got things against us. Some of you would say, I don't know the Bible as well as I should. God can't use me. 
Some of you would say, I've got things in my personal life that I keep hidden from my church family. If you knew about this stuff, you would reject me outright. Some of you would say, I failed so many times, I'm just a world-class loser. And yet God says, perfect. Yeah, I'll take you. That, that's exactly the kind of person I want to use. And he can. Can I just say something real quick? I kind of alluded this at the beginning. I'm sorry to say this. I hate to say this, but for a lot of people, unfortunately, a lot of people feel like they're unworthy because of something that was done or said to them by religious people. And if you're one of those people who were mistreated, who were looked down upon, who were made to feel unworthy by religious people, and you're here today, I'm in awe of your courage just to come. But I want to say something. The way God's people act does not change who God is. Because one of the things you may not have realized is if you're looking for a place where there are no sinners, a church is the last place you want to go. Churches are full of sinners. And we're going to let you down sometimes. But he, will, he never will. Don't underestimate God's ability to use you. And yes, some of you would say, yeah, but, but I've made terrible mistakes. Yeah, but my family's a mess. Yeah, but I'm still addicted. I've still got problems. I'm st- I'm... That's okay. God takes you where you are and he doesn't leave you there. So come to him and say, I want to be yours. Ephesians 2.10 is my favorite verse in the Bible. For you are God's masterpiece, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he declared, that he prepared ahead of time for you to do. Before you were ever born, God had in mind what he wanted you to accomplish. And he's been working on you ever since the day you were redeemed to make you the person, the exact right person to reach that guy who's hurting, to to help that woman who's in a bad spot, to to help that family, to, to make a difference. That plan doesn't change no matter what you do. He can still use you. And he can do amazing things through you. So I want you to, I want to take a quick poll, okay? Quick poll. How many of you have ever seen a Charlie Brown Christmas? All right. Right? So Charlie Brown Christmas came out in 1965. And you may be surprised to know this because we think of the mid-60s as being a very, very Christian, very moral time when, before everything went haywire, right? And yet... When Charles Schultz was writing A Charlie Brown Christmas, the executives at CBS, who had already said they were going to put a special on TV, they rejected his script entirely. They said, you can't do this. It's going to be boring. It's not going to, it's not going to attract anybody. And most of all, you can't quote the Bible on TV. Because the key point in the whole presentation is when Linus stands up and quotes Luke 2 from the King James Version. They said, you can't do that. People will be offended. And Charles Schultz said, take it or leave it. This is what I'm going to do. So they put it on the air. Over 50% of Americans watched it the first year. That's never happened. That won't happen ever again in TV history. To this day, it's considered a Christmas classic. Some of you may remember this, but a few years ago when Apple TV was getting off the, off the ground and, and they bought the rights to Charlie Brown Christmas from CBS... There was such an uproar among American people because suddenly that show wasn't going to be available on free TV anymore that Apple, who, who basically does what they want, for once capitulated and said, okay, okay, we can't handle this bad PR. We're going to go ahead and put it on free TV again. Now, why? Why is this so beloved? Because I got to be honest with you, several years ago when my kids were still small, I, I sat down with them and I watched Charlie Brown Christmas and it was the first time since I was a little kid that I'd seen it. And you know what? I see the point the executives were making. It is really kind of slow. 
It is a little boring. I was used to my kids' cartoons with, you know, the flashy graphics and the high-quality animation and the sarcastic humor, and it had none of those things. And I thought, how is this such a beloved show? And yet, in a way, that's a good illustration for the things of God. Because God's things, his plans, if he were to like sit down with us and say, okay, here's what I'm going to do, we'd always say, we'd we'd say every time, Lord, that's not going to work. And yet every time it works. God's plans are not our plans. His ways shouldn't work, but they do. The people he chooses shouldn't be powerful, but they change the world. My question for you, and this is where I end, is are you one of those people? Not asking you to stand up and act like Superman or Wonder Woman and say, yes, I'm changing the world. That's not what I want you to say. But what I want to ask is, are you a person who says, Lord, I believe that you can change the world through me and I'm willing to do whatever you've commanded me to do?